And welcome to another Overtime Preview. This is part four of our Women's History of Labor Struggle in the United States series, where we talk a little bit about the IWW and a bunch of other struggles that happened right around World War I. If you'd like the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get any funding for doing the show, and we genuinely appreciate it. You can also help us by writing us a review somewhere, and again, we appreciate that as well. Either way, here's the preview. Hope you enjoy it in solidarity. The women conductors and their allies in the suffragette movement, because again, this is just before uh, women were finally given the right to vote uh, in 1920, which was actually largely done in response to the Bolshevik Revolution, by the way. Um, But uh, (laughs) (laughs) put footnote. Yeah. Uh, So the women conductors and their allies sued to reverse the ruling. And surprisingly, the War Labor Board actually accepted the women's argument on the basis that, yes, the men are returning and they should be hired back into their jobs. But actually, now that we've done the investigation we didn't bother to do before, there actually is enough vacancies because there's so much demand for travel around the city that actually they can hire everybody. There, There is, like, you don't have to have one or the other. They could hire both. And yet... Even this stupid, like, compromise ruling did not go into effect because the union refused to accept it. They threatened to strike again if the women conductors were retained. And so the company fired them all and promised to hire no more. And unfortunately, that would turn out to be the pattern in most cities. That sucks. Yeah, Mm -hmm. disappointing. But I will say, for once, I have a good note to end on. For this, right. this particular segment. Because in one city, only one city, but in one, the women were not abandoned by the men conductors. And that's actually in Kansas City. Oh, cool. Where the union embraced the women conductors from the start and allowed them into the union. <laughs> and the union demanded at the end of the war that the rail company raise women's pay to the same as men for the same work. And the war labor board ruled in their favor. And shockingly, what a surprise. That meant you could have women conductors and the men conductors' wages didn't go down. They actually went up. Well, that's also what's interesting about this. Okay, so not only does this stand out because obviously Kansas City got something right. Nailed it, Kansas City. We don't hear a lot about you, so (laughs) glad to hear something good. Um, But also, like, that means that all of this bullshit that was going on in these other cities actually had a perfectly good case study Mm -hmm. of what would happen if you weren't a weird chauvinist about the whole thing and they just ignored it. Yeah. That, I mean, I shouldn't be surprised because we, we do the equivalent of that today, but it's like, it really wounds me sometimes when people like not only are wrong on principle, but also are wrong. And there's like a perfectly good example in the real world existing of why they're wrong. And it's just like, they don't care. Yeah. Mm. Ideological blinders are very powerful. Yeah, I mean, 100%. It, it's, it is, it. is. this is the perfect example, I mean, ultimately, that, you know, solidarity helps everyone. Mm-hmm. There's not this point where you're like, oh, I don't know, if I show solidarity with that group, that might make my group weaker. Like, I don't even what? understand how people <laughs> yeah, are like, right? Unless the other group is uh, cops or anyone cops work for, you're fine. Help them out. <laughs> yeah, and and because that's the thing. It's like in case after case after case after case, you had the the these men workers who were just like, no, we can't have any women conductors. They're going to drive my wages down. And then they drive the women workers out of the the business, and their wages don't go up because why would they? 
Right. Also, they just spent a ton of their energy doing something dumb, mm-hmm. just flailing around. Like yeah. So that's yeah. a like you know, petulant children. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. men are sometimes known to do. <laughs> men love to throw tantrums. It's true. <laughs> they um, really do. So. So yeah, I mean the the war was a land of contradictions, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, and but. You know, as the country came out of World War One, the AFL emerged fully entrenched in its craft unionism centered on men, focusing nearly all of its efforts as the war came to a close on ensuring employment for the returning soldiers, even at the expense of the millions of women and black workers hired during the war. The Women's Trade Union League came out of the war as the primary group advocating for women workers, but without the full material backing of the AFL that they needed to be truly effective. They won the mild reform of forcing the state to make the Women's Bureau of the Labor Department, which had been formed during the war, into a permanent office, rather than a temporary one which would expire. Many WTUL organizers actually then ended up working at the Women's Bureau after the war. However, neither the WTUL nor the Bureau were able to force unions or industry to stop discrimination against women workers. And no, they that they would fix that in just a couple years. <laughs> No. Yeah. Wait, this, and, oh, I'm getting word that that's still happening today a little bit. Yeah, and I guess, you know, <laughs> it's not just that they, you know, were not able to force them to stop discrimination. They were not even able to really pass legislation attempting to do that, really. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that being said, just because the League and the Women's Bureau were not materially supported and were therefore really forced to not be nearly as effective as they otherwise could have been. That really didn't stop them from being accused of being tools of communism. Well, that'd be the cool. The new menace l- looming over the global capitalist class after the Russian Revolution. Damn, what a cool thing to be called. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> the Daughters of the American Revolution, a group you don't really hear so much about today, so I don't know if our listeners are going to know who they are, but... uh not good because let me tell you who they're associated here with which is henry ford <laughs> oh, great. Uh, prominent figures in in early american fascism accused the wtul of being part of a quote communist conspiracy end quote i mean the, and, the name uh, american like daughters of the quote like american revolution end quote like just like that tells you almost as much as you need to know right there yeah, did this communist conspiracy have something to do with, uh, um, what is it called? What's the super anti-Semitic text Henry oh, Ford published? Oh, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? Yeah, does this have something to do with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion? <laughs> I don't think so, but it's it's Henry Ford, so prob- I'm sure there's anti-Semitism in there somewhere. Yeah, there's got to be. I mean, they were super intertwined, and especially during this era, Judeo-Bolshevism was a very popular oh, yeah. term. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But so the specific charges uh, leveled at the WTUL, not just the fact that they're involved in organizing trade unions, and therefore they must be sedentary, communists, but it was that they established the Bryn Mawr Summer School for Workers, which covered both basic higher education topics as well as economics and organizing training. And at the prompting of the students and teachers, that school was quickly integrated and educated about 100 women workers every summer, which of course means that this must be a subversive communist plot. <laughs> well, right, so like 
doing good things for people, especially like people who have been previously disenfranchised, uh, that's communism. They actually the answer to that is yes. Well, I also just love because you know what's one of the stupidest rejoinders we always hear from people on the internet? Oh, go learn some basic economics. They're trying to teach workers economics, and now they're oh, you must be a communist. Right? Can't win with these people. (laughs) But uh, despite the ridiculous accusations, uh, the school was actually you know was aimed at a really good purpose. It was basically like, look, there there are so few opportunities for the vast majority of workers to get any sort of continuing education beyond what limited public education really was available at the time. So we will offer that sort of stuff. And and a, a key supporter of workers' education and this sort of effort was Fannie Cohn, who served on the executive board of the ILGWU, the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, for 12 years, from 1916 to 1928, and was the first ever woman vice president of a major U.S. union. Two WTUL leaders, Rose Schneiderman, who was WTUL president from 1926 to 1950, and Mary Anderson, traveled to Paris to present proposals for the major treaty negotiations to protect the rights of women workers. This list of proposals included banning child labor, mandatory free education for all children, equality of the sexes in the workplace, and social funding for health care and retirement. None of these proposals were adopted, beyond a single vague provision calling for equal pay for men and women. And so, with their appeals to, you know, the, the great powers coming out of World War I falling on deaf ears, the WTUL just decided, okay, well, screw it. We'll, we'll meet directly with our fellow workers here in Europe. And so they, they called the first International Congress of Working Women with 50 delegates from countries such as Britain, Poland, France, Sweden, Argentina, Belgium, Norway, Canada, Czechoslovakia, Denmark, Japan, India, Cuba, the Netherlands, Serbia, Spain, Switzerland, and of course the United States. The one, that list, uh, it, I mean, that's an extensive list. It's also an interesting list when you look at like of like South America. There's just Argentina. <laughs> yeah, and I mean Cuba is interesting, but that's also pre-revolution. Uh, so. Yeah, well, it's like, what's the country that's the most Europeanized at the time out of, in, like, through settlerism in, in Latin America? It's Argentina. So. Mm-hmm. And um. also the Dutch were there, because the <laughs> Dutch are always there. You can't shake us. <laughs> <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it so much like that, because I feel like uh, it's happened in the past, and it will happen again. We're a problem. <laughs> and so the congress issued a union women's labor program of legislative proposals similar to the ones that they presented to the versailles conference the idea basically being look we we're the representatives you know from our 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 country's labor movement of working women we know we need these proposals so even if these assholes aren't going to listen we can take these back to our own organizations and Mm -hmm. fight for them there and so one thing, though, that's a little weird is that despite the focus of on unions in the names of all the organizations involved, their primary focus of action was not direct action or union organizing, but legislative reform via political campaigns. They, they like, encouraged union organizing, but that was not their primary focus, which is probably why a lot of these reforms were not so much super effective. Um because they didn't have the the basically the the as much fight as they would need, you know, the actual like leverage of blocking capital and such. 
Yeah, because it's focused on appealing to our rulers rather than forcing them to do things. Mm-hmm. So, but meanwhile, in in the in as we roll into the twenties, at the end of World War One, the AFL continued to protect unions like the Molders, who explicitly barred women from membership. It got so bad that in 1921, a campaign by the WTUL to organize women furniture workers in Grand Rapids, Michigan, failed because of vehement opposition from the union representing the men. There are women of many descriptions In this clear world as everyone knows Some are living in beautiful mansions And are wearing the finest of clothes There are blue-blooded queens and princesses With their charms made of diamond and pearl Of the world, for it's great to fight for freedom. 